I want to look at um, an idea that I uh, came across in the scriptures. I was just reading, it may have been actually two weeks ago or so, but it was a, just one phrase that really just struck me, and I wanted to, to speak about it a little bit. And I want to draw for us some application on this passage. So it's from... Uh, it's found in Second Chronicles, so you can go there. Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-two. This is not really going to be so much of a Bible study as it will be maybe more of an exhortation of sorts. But nevertheless, I do hope it'll be useful. So. The text is in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 25. We'll be reading that here in a minute. But we have in these couple of verses uh, a little bit of an explanation of what takes place after this glorious triumph that Hezekiah has over the Assyrian army. Um I talked about this in one of the messages on prayer a little bit, and Manny mentioned it recently as well in one of his messages. So hopefully you're familiar with it. But, you know, what happens is these Assyrians come against Judah. They send this letter to try to discourage the Israelites, basically telling them, don't trust in Yahweh. He's not going to be able to deliver you. No other God has been able to deliver uh, their people from my hand. I've been able to triumph over all of these nations. So they send this letter to the Israelites, and Hezekiah takes this blasphemous letter, and what does he do with it? <laughs> he brings it, brings it into the temple. He brings it into the temple, he raises it before the Lord, and he says, Lord, you know what they said, and calls upon God to act for his own namesake. So look at how that that section ends. After that battle, look at verse in chapter 32, starting in verse 22. It says, So Yahweh saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all his enemies, and he provided for them on every side. And many brought gifts to Yahweh, yeah, many brought gifts to Yahweh to Jerusalem and precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations from that time onward. So you get this thing comes to an end, this, this battle, and Judah has come out victorious, and Hezekiah has come out on top, and people are bringing gifts, and there's all this praise and, and worship going on, and Hezekiah is exalted and, and all this stuff. But... Now, I want you to notice how the narrative changes in the next two verses. Verses 24 and 25. Listen to this. In those days, so this is after that, that war with Assyria. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And he prayed to Yahweh and he answered him and gave him a sign. But... Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud 
Therefore wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. Now this is, it's quite a turn from what we had just seen in verses 22 and 23. We just saw Hezekiah coming out on top in this battle with the Assyrians. He's exalted. The nations are bringing precious things to him. He's an example of faith in, in what had just took place, an example of trusting the Lord. And then we see him, as the text says of him here, that he did not make return according to the benefit done to him. Did not make return, essentially saying, did not make return to the Lord for all the good that God had done to him. This is really, in my mind, it's really powerful language, and this is why this verse struck me. I, I thought of it in particular terms. I don't know if anybody's going to think of it in these terms, but what kind of language does this sound like? Does anybody have an idea of what kind of language? Like, where would you hear this kind of language? It didn't make a return. So I'm going to answer that in a minute. I'm wondering if anybody can think of where that you might hear that language. Is everybody kind of confused on what that means? Like business terms. Yes. Okay. What were you gonna say? Oh, that. <laughs> What about, so this is true, that's, that's a good scriptural example. I guess I'm thinking in, in the world, where is that verbiage used? You, were, you said, said something, business, like what? What are you? Investments. This is what I was thinking of. Yeah, this is what I'm thinking. This is what, this is what struck me, right? This is, like, this is the kind of language that you hear when, you talk, when people are talking about investments. You invest $100 into some business and you expect a return on that investment. A thousand bucks, $10,000, whatever it might be. You expect that that investment is going to gain you a return. That's the kind of language that's being used here. And that very much struck me because it, it, it paints this picture that what's being said is that God made an investment in Hezekiah. And what, we'll, what you see in, in 2 Kings, it doesn't give it in a lot of detail in 2 Chronicles here, but we'll see it. In 2 Kings, it says that God healed Hezekiah and gave him 15 more years on his life. So God makes this investment into Hezekiah, tells him, here's 15 more years. Here's a bit of an investment. And the sad result is, even though God makes this investment in Hezekiah, he receives no return on his investment. He invests something into this man and nothing comes back to him upon his investment. No return is made to the Lord for all the good that was done to him. And this verse very much seemed, it just struck me reading that. That language, Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him. Now, I want to show you what I think this meant in regards to Hezekiah, because I think if we see 
in his case, what was happening? How did this actually play out? I think we can see how it sort of applies to us a little better. But it's very interesting. Like, why is this spoken about this man? Why is he, at the end of his life, portrayed this way? Um, because Hezekiah didn't begin this way. Maybe, maybe if you're not familiar with Hezekiah, you're thinking, wow, this guy is a wicked wretch. God does him all this good, and he's such an abominable person. But Hezekiah's life, it's, it's very interesting. You read some of these men in Kings and Chronicles, and sometimes it, there's general statements spoken about them in very good terms, and you kind of wonder, huh, that's interesting. I wonder why that's the case. And then there's other times where things like this are spoken, but, but it kind of goes against what had been the norm for Hezekiah before this. In, in fact, he starts out his story in Chronicles and Kings as a shining example of someone. Um, he, in both 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings, his life is unfolded. And in 2 Chronicles, his life takes up four chapters. It ch starts in chapter 29. So you have 29, 30, 31, and 32 is all Hezekiah's stuff of Hezekiah's life. In 2 Kings, his life takes up three chapters. That's 18, 19, and 20. Now, I don't know. I didn't go look to calculate this, but having read these books a number of times, I'm, I'm fairly certain that that is either the longest or close to, in a second or third place maybe, of length of time devoted to one individual, one king. Most of the kings in the, in the scriptures, as you read Kings and Chronicles, they don't get that much time devoted to them. Some of them, it's just a paragraph. Some of them, maybe half a page. Some of them, a couple paragraphs. What they did, real short, and they move on. You get the next king. Hezekiah takes up four chapters in 2 Chronicles, three chapters in 2 Kings. These are large sections concerning one individual's life. And not only this, but there's really great things spoken about him. So go to 2 Kings verse, or chapter 18, 2 Kings 18, and I want you to see kind of just seeing what sums up his life a little bit. As, as the story of him begins... This is what's said of him. 2 Kings 18, starting in verse 3. And he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Ashereth, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it, and it was called Nehushtan. So he takes this bronze serpent and breaks this thing into pieces because the people are making it an idol. He trusted in Yahweh, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to Yahweh. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that Yahweh commanded Moses. And Yahweh was with him wherever he went. He prospered. So these are really mighty things spoken about Hezekiah. The Lord is with him. He's trusting in the Lord. No king like him had arisen before him or after. These are mighty things spoken about this man. And then in 2 Chronicles, you can go back over there. In 2 Chronicles, when his story begins in um, chapter 29, 
we see him do a handful of, of really wonderful things. Um, he cleanses the temple. He reinstitutes temple worship because these people had been often all kinds of paganism and idolatry. So he reinstitutes temple worship. He reinstitutes the Passover. Very interesting account there as he reinstitutes the Passover. He reorganizes the priests to function in this newly, newly restored temple worship. He does all these things, basically reestablishing God's covenant with the people and their obedience to God and all of these things. And then look what's said of him here. 2 Chronicles 31, uh, yeah, chapter 31, verses 20 and 21. <laughs> 2 Chronicles 31, verse 20 and 21. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah... And he did what was good and right and faithful before Yahweh his God. And every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God and in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. So again, these, I mean, this is, not, this is not like many of the kings in the scriptures. This man is not some wretch who abandoned the ways of David, his father, and went and walked in the sins of Jeroboam and whatever else they did. This is a man who's done things for the Lord. He's glorified God. He's established the worship again in a people that had lost it. And then following these things, both in 2 Kings and Chronicles, we then enter into that story of the Assyrians. They come against Judah. They bring all this... this, this uh, um, mockery towards Judah and towards Yahweh and Hezekiah prays and, and, and you know, you get the glorious deliverance there in chapter 32 of Second Chronicles. But then something changes in verse 24. Those verses, those two verses we just read in chapter 32, verses 24 and 25, something in Hezekiah's story changes. I mean, it comes to, and, and following these couple of verses right here, after it says, In those days Hezekiah became sick, at the, point of, at the point of death he prayed to the Lord and he answered him. In fact, let me just, let's go back and read that in 2 Kings. So go back to 2 Kings. I want you just to see in terms of that um, situation with his sickness. So 2 Kings 20 Because 2 Chronicles just sums it all up in a few words. But here's what happens. So after that, after that battle with the Assyrians, and, and Hezekiah comes out victorious, 2 Kings 20, verse 1. In those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to Yahweh, saying, Oh, now Yahweh, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. So here's this man. He's saying, Lord, hold on a second. Look at what I've done. I've walked before you. I've done good in your sight. <coughs> remember my faithfulness. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of Yahweh came to him. 
Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says Yahweh, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of Yahweh. There's another one of those examples that we were trying to remember. We were in Peru. We were thinking of examples of that. There's one. (laughs) On the third day, you shall go up to the house of Yahweh. And I will add 15 years to your life. So there's, there's where he tells him, I'm going to give you another 15 years. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own, uh, for my, for my own sake and, from, and for my, sa- my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Bring a cake of figs and let them, uh, let them take and lay it on the boil that he may recover. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What shall be the sign that Yahweh will heal me and that I shall go up to the house of Yahweh on the third day? And Isaiah said, This shall be the sign to you from Yahweh that Yahweh will do the thing that he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps or go back ten steps? And Hezekiah answered, It is an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen ten steps. Rather, let the shadow go back ten steps. And Isaiah the prophet called to Yahweh and he brought the shadow back ten steps by which it had gone down to the steps of Ahaz. So there's that situation, right? Hezekiah is sick. God promises he's going to heal him. He's going to give him another 15 years. He gives him this sign so that he knows, yes, I'm going to heal you. And, uh, and then, so now, I know we're jumping all over the place. Go back over there to 2 Chronicles again, chapter 32. So now you know what, what happened so when it says here in 2 Chronicles 32, 24, in those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death and he prayed to Yahweh and he answered him and gave him a sign. So you know what happened there. He prayed, God answered him, told him he was going to give him another 15 years, gave him a sign that he was going to heal him. Okay, And then things from that moment onward, you know, I told you, Hezekiah's life, his, the explanation of his life, has four chapters in 2 Chronicles. You can notice here from verse 25, the chapter ends at verse 33. That's the last verse of chapter 32, and then it moves on to Manasseh. Hezekiah's life's done. So you had four chapters of this man's life, and then from the point he gets sick and the Lord heals him, you get less than 10 verses. Not much else is said about him. This man's life, the story of Hezekiah comes to an abrupt end after he, after he has victory over Assyria. And especially so given how much time we had already seen spent on his life in Chronicles and Kings. Something changes after this miraculous defeat. And... In part, I think it's what is said there in the second part of verse 25. It says, Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Brother, when people become proud, they take their eyes off of the glory of God as their chief aim. Because now they're lifted up. The glory of God is no longer their chief aim. Now the glory of self tends to battle out in that number one spot. 
Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. Brethren, this is true in Hezekiah's case. It really was. And, and don't think, oh, well, that means all that stuff about Hezekiah wasn't real. Yes, it was. It was. He really did those things. He really did glorify God in what he was doing earlier on in his life. And you get a very similar thing with King, uh, King Uzziah. He's glorifying God and what he's doing, and then he becomes proud. And then he wants to go and try to offer sacrifice on it by himself. He has no place to do that. And you know what happens? He gets proud. He goes into the, into the holy place. He becomes a leper. And the Bible says he was a leper in a secluded place till the day he died. These men, they become proud. We see these kings, they become proud, and it's their downfall. Pride comes, then comes disgrace. And so all we're told after this event, so you get this deliverance from the Assyrians. And all we're told after this, after the Lord heals Hezekiah, all we are told after this is that we're told he made no return, so we know that. We're then told briefly in 2 Chronicles 27 through 33, that he had great wealth and possessions, that God tested him in the matter of these envoys, these are just people sent from Babylon, that God, so he, he had great wealth and possessions, God tested him, and then he dies. That's it. There's nothing else said about him. The story comes to a screeching halt in comparison to what we had seen in all these things that had happened in Hezekiah's life before this. And it's no different in 2 Kings. It's the same thing over there. You read his life in 2 Kings. You get three chapters of glorious things that Hezekiah is doing for the Lord. And then at the start of 2 Kings 20, we're told of his sickness. We read that account. He gets sick. The Lord heals him. And we might think, brethren, given what had, we had seen before out of this man's life, God tells him, I'm giving you 15 more years, Hezekiah. We might think, wow, what is he going to do with these 15 more years? We're going to get a couple more chapters. Hezekiah's life, what other reforms he was able to do in Judah, and what other battles he was able to fight for the Lord, what other things he was able to do to glorify God. You might think you're going to get that, brother, but you don't get that when you read this account. You don't find with those 15 years that Hezekiah does a lot of things to glorify the Lord. And in 2 Kings, we get a little bit of unfolding about what's said here. In, in, in 2 Chronicles, all it says is, um, in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had sent to him to inquire of the sign that had been done to him, God left him to, left him to himself in order to test him. So there's no real explanation of who are these envoys, who are these people sent from Babylon, how did God test him, what was that all about? But in 2 Kings, we are told about that. Um, these, these people come in from Babylon, and Hezekiah begins to show them all around his kingdom, all these things he has, all his possessions. He has great pompous and pride in his material possessions. And not only this, but he has a willful ignorance of the coming judgment. He goes so far, brethren, that when Isaiah comes to him and rebukes him and tells him, all this stuff is going to go into exile, these, this place is going to be judged. All this stuff you just showed off to Babylon, it's going to be taken away. And not only that, your children are going to be taken away. 
This judgment's coming. And this is Hezekiah's response. 2 Kings 20, verse 19. The word of Yahweh that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not? If there will be peace and security in my days. This man had gone from reinstituting the foundations of worship for God's people that had been lost to now a willful ignorance of judgment that was coming so long as it didn't come in his own days. And so in 2 Chronicles and, and 2 Kings, Hezekiah's life comes to an end in a very, a very sad way. This is the last bit of information that we get about him. Pride and negligence. The man is healed. He's given 15 more years to live. And nothing more, at least in a good light, is spoken about him for the next several verses. And I think this is what is meant by what is said in 2 Chronicles. That Hezekiah made no return according to all the benefit done to him. God gave this man 15 more years. And what did he do with it? It seems nothing of God-glorifying value. And it's a sad end. Brethren, because it wasn't always that way for him. Hezekiah did accomplish many mighty things for the Lord. Many things that were glorifying to God in his earlier days. But not near the end. And this is what I want us to avoid. My encouragement to you tonight, and sort of the way I've, I've titled this, given the, the nature of the language that's here, is make a return on the Lord's investment. That's what I'm wanting us to think about. Brethren, I'm telling you right now, you don't want this spoken about you. You don't want this to be your life's testimony. So-and-so lived and made no return according to all the benefit that the Lord had done to him. Brethren, you do not want this said about you. And so what will we do with our lives in response to what God has done for us? We ask the question of the psalmist, one, Psalm 116 verse 12. What shall I render to Yahweh for all His benefits to me? Brother, this is what we're asking. This is what we're trying to live for. I mean, whether you have 30 years, 30 days, 30 minutes, 30 seconds left in your life, really doesn't matter. The question is, what are you going to do for the Lord with what He has given you? Whatever giftings God has given you, don't be thinking, oh, I don't have this gift or that gift or this guy's over here, that girl's over there, and everybody else has gotten, you know, what about me? Brethren, whatever God has given you, what are you going to do with them? Whatever in, God has invested in you, He's made an investment, brethren. Are we determined to bring the Lord as much of a return as we possibly can? Some, some of you guys had mentioned and undoubtedly thought about this, the parable of uh, the parable of the talents there in Matthew 25. You get Jesus given this parable. He talks about this master that's going away on a journey, right? 
And he, here he takes his servants, and he, he divvies up to them his resources. He gives one five talents, one two, one one. This, this, this monetary value. Here, take some resources, and you go, go work with them. Go, do, go work and go, go you know, make, a, make a return for me when I come back. And here comes the master back, and two of them make a return for this one, for this master, and this other one. What is he, what is he called? A wicked and what else? Slothful. A wicked and slothful servant. Brother, that's, like, that's the kind of language. I mean, that kind of thing, I recognize it's not used here about Hezekiah, but, but it could as well be said about the end of his life. Hezekiah, all your life you did things for the glory of God. And now what did you do at the end? Here's 15 more years, Hezekiah. You've been a wicked and slothful servant these 15 years. No return. No return on all the good that the Lord had done to you. Brother, we don't want to be like that. We've got to avoid that kind of thing in our lives. And then there's, there's another way in which this is spoken about in the Scriptures. A little bit different way that the language is framed. But we can see it even in the New Testament in a little bit different light. So you have, if we want to say it sort of stated positively as what we saw here in Hezekiah, stated positively is we want to make a return on the Lord's investment. All right? Positive way to look at that. Make a return on the Lord's investment. There is a negative way in which this is phrased in the New Testament, something that Paul says. Anything come to somebody's mind that Paul says? That I, it's not going to be any of these words. But it's going to be this idea. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15. <clears throat> I'm just going to start in verse 3. Paul's account of not only the fundamentals of the gospel, but what took place after Christ was raised. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now watch what he says. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So you see this, this language Paul uses. His grace toward me was not in vain. What does that mean? That is a very good way to... That's a very good way to 
translate that in very simple words. It wasn't wasted. That, that Paul is saying, God was gracious to me and he saved me and it wasn't a waste of his time. Brethren, this is very strong ways to speak. And I love Paul's example here. You know, listen, sometimes we can get, we can get, we can see men in the scriptures and they're godly men, they're, they're examples. But, you know, Paul's not Jesus. Paul isn't the Savior. Um, Paul's not perfect. But he was someone who could say, follow me as I follow Christ. Brethren, Paul was determined that the grace shown to him by God was not going to be for nothing. That it wasn't going to be in vain. That it wasn't going to be worthless. In other words, Paul did not determine that he was going to go on his merry way to heaven and do as little as he could possibly do until that departure date. He had realized God had shown me such grace and I refuse to live my life in such a way that I'm just waiting until I can get out of here. And as little as I can do until that day comes, that's how I'm going to live. Paul wasn't going to do that, brethren. Instead, he says, I worked harder than any of them. Now, undoubtedly, this is attributed to the grace of God, as it ought to be. Uh, nothing that we do can be attributed to our own strength or methods or power or ability or any of those things. We c that can't be attributed to us. All blessing does come from the Lord without a doubt. But brethren, don't forget that God has chosen us as instruments in His work. That is how God has chosen to work. You know, Jesus, uh, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. I believe it's this account. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. The people are crying out, Hosanna. And the leaders tell him to tell his disciples to be quiet. And I think it's there he says, if these wouldn't cry out, the very stones would cry out. Well, that is true. Undoubtedly, God could make that happen. But that's not how God has ordered things to be. He's ordered not stones to cry out to the glory of God, but, but us to do it. For people to be the instruments of His work. And Paul had a desire to be an instrument that would be useful in the hand of the Master. Listen, he, Paul wasn't going to be useful on his own. Of his own strength, of his own power, of his own abilities, Paul would not have been useful. No different than if I go take my hammer from my truck and I lay it on this table, it's not going to do anything. It's just an instrument. It's just a tool. It, doesn't, it cannot do anything by itself just sitting there. Someone's got to pick that tool up and make that tool useful. Now, I recognize in this analogy it doesn't work so well because that hammer can't of its own accord present itself to me and say, use me, use me, use me. But we can do this in the kingdom of God. We can do this before the Lord. We can come to the Lord and we can say, Lord, I want to be, a, I want to be an instrument useful for your kingdom. Use me, Lord. Use me. Pick me up, Lord, and use me however you see fit. Help Use me to build over here. Use me to build over there. Use me to build over here. And brethren, Paul Paul had this idea in himself. He wanted to be an instrument useful to the Lord. Here I am, Lord, use me. This is his thought. And, and so he was used of God. So he was used of God in great ways. 
Brethren, God's grace towards Paul was not in vain. Much of what you read in the New Testament is from this man. God's grace towards him was not useless. What I'm trying to get across to you, brethren, is that this is what we, how we would live, that God's grace towards us wouldn't be in vain. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 21, a vessel, to be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Brethren, this is what we need. Vessels useful to the master. You want to be useful to God? I want to be useful to God. I want to present myself to Him. Lord, this is, is this not what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 12? What does he say there? Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. Somebody here knows it for sure. <laughs> what does it say? No, to go back. Right there. Brethren, present yourself. You don't just sit back. Oh, the Lord's going to do things, and I don't know, maybe he'll, I don't know, maybe he'll use me. Brethren, present yourself as what? A living sacrifice. Here I am, Lord. I'm presenting myself. I'm a, just a tool. I'm, right now, I am just a useless dead hammer, but if you pick this hammer up and you use it, you can build a house with it. You know what things you can do with a hammer? You can do some pretty good, good things with a hammer. But you need to have a master, you a skilled worker using that hammer. Brother, we present ourselves to the Lord to be used of Him. A honorable, a vessel of honor, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. But then there is a mentality that has um, plagued Christianity. I don't know for how long, but it's been for some time that I've seen this often in, in the life of Christians. A mentality that says, how little can I do for the Lord and still get to glory? How little can I do and still make it to heaven? This is, the, this is a rule list mentality. It's people that are saying, give me the list. What is it that I can do? What is it that I can't do? And I'm just going to try to keep the list. And I'm, I'm not going to do less than that, but I'm certainly not going to do more than that. Whatever it is that I got to do, I'm going to do. And whatever I can't do, I'm not going to do. But don't ask me to go beyond any. I just want to keep the rule list and get to heaven. That's all I'm looking to do. Brethren, I, like I said, I don't know how long this has been the case, but sadly, I think this is going to produce, in the end, I'm not <laughs> foreseeing anything necessarily, but, but what I am saying, I, I, just, I very much believe this will produce in the end, is a lot more 30-fold Christians than 100-fold Christians. <laughs> I'm going to go to the text in a minute. What, what, I'm, what I'm referencing is, where does that come from? This idea of 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. No. 
Not the parable of the talents. Anybody know where it comes from? It's another parable the Lord gives. Parable of the sower. So go to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. Jesus gives this parable. Starts in verse 1 of chapter 13. I'm not going to read the parable, but 1 through 9, he gives this parable. Man goes out, he sows seed. You guys know what happens, right? He sows seed. Some of it falls on the rock. Some of it falls on the path. Some of it falls among the thorns. Some of it falls on good soil. Then he explains the parable in verses 18 through 23. I will read this section. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So he's explaining the parable here. The seed that was sown along the path, the devil comes and snatches it away. That's why it doesn't produce anything. Verse 20, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and in another thirty. So here we have this, you know, you have this parable, there's four different categories, so to speak, of people. And this last category, I mean, these people are the real deal. Praise the Lord. These are real deal Christians. They hear the word. They produce fruit. But brethren, if you look carefully, you will realize that even in this group, there is distinction. There are some that produce a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. This is these are Christians producing different degrees of fruit. And what I'm saying is, brethren, I am afraid that the mindset that has plagued the Christian world at this present time is producing maybe genuine Christianity in some ways, but, but, but merely 30-fold Christianity. Christianity at its minimalist. Christianity just to get by. Brethren, I ask you, what do you want to be? Do you want to be a 30-fold Christian? And just, you know, I want to get there, but, you know, however, so to speak, however I can get there in my minimalist way. Or do you want to be a 100-fold Christian? Then you want to seek to bring the Lord a 100-fold harvest? You know what, that, that, that language there, 100-fold, 60-fold, 30, 
it really just means uh, sort of like times. So the idea is that you sow out a certain amount and you're reaping in a hundred times what you sowed or 60 times what you sowed or 30 times what you sowed. And the idea is, brethren, that there, there are Christians in this world that in the final day, there are going to be some Christians that, that produced more fruit than others. And sad to say that there are going to be some that produce very little fruit because they didn't want to. They didn't have the heart to. They weren't sold out to. They weren't determined like Paul that the grace of God would not be in vain towards them. Brother, do we want to seek to bring the Lord a hundredfold? Or just merely bring thirty if we can? I want you to listen to these words. I have two examples here of different men in church history, and I want you to just hear some things that they've had to say. This is a very well-known poem by a man named C.T. Studd. Um, he was a missionary. Uh, there's a really good biography. Um, it's both on Amazon and YouTube that you can watch of C.T. Studd. Um, I would highly encourage you guys to watch it. The man is, his life is, so, it's like, I want to read a, I want to buy a biography of him and read it because the movie, you just think, I need more info on this guy. It's absolutely incredible. He, he begins as a missionary to China. He spends many years in China, learns the Chinese language, translates a bunch of stuff, is a missionary there in China. Then decides later he wants to be a missionary in India. Moves to North India, learns an Indian language, pastors a church in South India later on. Then later, he decides he's going to be a missionary in Africa, goes and moves into the middle of Africa and learns all these different African languages and is a missionary there for the last part of his life. It's absolutely just incredible what, what goes on with his life. But he wrote this poem called Only One Life Twill Soon Be Passed. And I'm just going to read some sections of it. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life twill, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a brief few years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in His will. Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn from the world, now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, now let me say thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life twill soon be passed, 
and only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burnt out for thee. But there's a mindset that we have got to learn to maintain. It's not easy. (laughs) I'm not saying it's easy to maintain this kind of thing. But if we want to be useful to the Master, we've got to learn to do that. We've got to learn to maintain this thought process. Let me give you another example here. Jonathan Edwards... um, He wrote a set of 70 resolutions. If I remember right, I think he wrote them when he was 18 or 19. Do you guys know? Yeah, very young. I don't even know if he was 20, but anyway, however old he was, very, very young. He wrote these 70 resolutions, how he wanted to live his life as a man who was determined to make a return on the Lord's investment. And these are ways he wants to keep his life. Let me read you a few of these just so you can see how this man's mind was. Number five, resolution number five, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Number six, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Number 17, resolve that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. 30, resolve to strive to my utmost every week to be brought higher in religion and to a higher exercise of grace than I was the week before. You hear this? His thought is, each week I need to be able to see myself growing, growing in the knowledge of the Lord, growing in grace. Listen to this one. This is my favorite one. (laughs) Number 63. It's kind of hard language, but I'll try to explain it. He says, On the supposition that there never was to be but one individual in the world at any time who was properly a complete Christian, in all respects of right stamp, having Christianity always shining in its true luster, and appearing excellent and lovely from whatever part and under whatever character viewed, resolved to act just as I would do if I strove with all my might to be that one who should live in my time. Does everybody understand this? (laughs) His mouth is open, so maybe not. Okay, here's what he's saying. Supposing that... In the world, at any given time, there can only be one most complete and mature Christian. You get that idea, right? That, that he's saying, supposing that this is the case, in the world, there is, at this time, one who stands above all others as the most complete and mature Christian. That you look at him in all these different lights, and, or she, and they seem... Above all, above all others, the most complete and mature Christian. He's saying, supposing that this is the case in all the world, that, there's this, that there is this one Christian. He's saying, I want to live in such a way that in my own time, that I might be that one Christian. 
Listen, we could, th- that could easily, of course, invoke pride in the heart of man, but I think it can also be a way of thinking, uh, having done so under a right view of humility and who we are under God, an encouragement for us to live that way. To say to ourselves, not in a matter of pride that I might be seen among others, that I might lord my greatness over others, but that in my desire to be useful to the Master, that I would so labor and live for the cause of Christ, that if in my age, from when I was from 1992 on until whenever it is that I die, in that period of time, if there can be a most complete Christian, that I could be that, that I could live my life and be that Christian. Well, again, this is a man who recognizes the Lord's investment in him, and he wants to make a return. He wants to make such a return that at the day he dies and the Lord receives him in, he could hear, not only well done, good and faithful servant, well done, good and most faithful servant of your time. Now, I want to say one more thing here before we come to an end. And that's this. I, I want to maybe correct some thinking because we can think that after saying all of this and thinking all this way, somehow to make an, a return on the Lord's investment, that what you need to do is go be a missionary in some unknown jungle. Or you need to be like Paul and go plant 10 churches. Or you got to write 10 volumes of Christian doctrine and you got to get your name out. Somehow you got to make this big impact in the world and that's how you're going to be, make some great return on the Lord's investment. But brethren, this is simply not the case. It's not the case scripturally. And I want to introduce you here to a few faithful brothers and sisters that... I know very little, and you know very little, but nevertheless, we're very useful in God's kingdom and seemingly made a return on the Lord's investment. So I want you to look at Romans chapter 16. This is a chapter that I think, I mean, I don't know about you, but it's very easy to just kind of skim through this, mostly because we don't even know how to pronounce a lot of these names, and it becomes a bit tricky. Romans 16 We could skim past this, reading over these people. Paul's writing these greetings to this church at Rome. But brethren, this has often been a place of encouragement for me. And I want to read this to you. So let's let me start here in verse verse one, chapter 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. So here's this lady Phoebe. A servant of the church at Kencray, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So here's Phoebe. What is she? Just a servant of the church. (laughs) Nothing special about her. She's been a patron of many and of Paul. She's been a servant of Paul, servant of the church. She made it here in the scriptures for all eternity to bear. Greet Prissa and Achilla, 
my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Who are these two? They, they are somewhere else in the Bible. Their names are a little bit different. Priscilla and Aquila? <laughs> what did they do? Someone named some great feat Priscilla and Aquila did. No? What about a, what about a little one? These, these two, Priscilla. No, but you said, what about a little one? A little one. Oh, what do they do? Oh. They're mentioned. They're mentioned in the book of Acts. What do they do? Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to say it. Someone here is going to say it. <laughs> Even if it's one of you two. <laughs> oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> oh, never mind. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, companions of Paul, fellow tent makers, travel companions. Yeah. They. What else? Mm. You got any better? <laughs> 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 nope. Didn't they, uh, oh, go ahead. Didn't they correct? That's right. Somebody. Oh, yeah, they brought Apollos over. Yeah, okay. That's right. They corrected Apollos, this preacher, this, this man who didn't have a proper understanding of, of uh, what was it, baptism or the Spirit? Baptism. Baptism. He might have been a Presbyterian. <laughs> so so they, they pull aside this man. They correct him on this idea of baptism. But that's it. Nothing mighty done by these people. They're servants in the church too. You know what? They just corrected somebody. Brother, you see how little something like this? You, you see a brethren that's, one of the brethren that's straying and you correct them, you turn them back into the proper way? Brother, that right there is an invest, that's a return on Lord's investment. You know what it says? And um, Now I'm, going off somewhere else here for a second but I'm pretty sure it's here <laughs> let me just see yes one of these guys is going to get to it at the end of James listen to this my brothers if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins this is spoken of many, many times in the scriptures it's a good work Priscilla and Aquila, they rebuke this man. They rebuke a preacher. Mighty in the scriptures. And here they are. Romans chapter 16. Greet also the church in their house. Verse 5. Greet my beloved Epineatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. How about this man? Don't know what he did. Don't know if he really did anything, right? All we know is he just he is a believer. He is a Christian. He's the first Christian in Asia. Praise the Lord. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Hardworking Mary over here. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. Here's some people who are in prison. They are known well to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. 
Greet Ampelaetus, my beloved in the Lord. I like that one. I'd like to be in, in Paul's writing, his beloved in the Lord. <laughs> Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Good, another just good ways of these people being spoken, approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphania and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Again, these people, they're just, they're working hard in the Lord. No mighty things to spoke of, to, to be spoken of, but they're working hard in the Lord. They're looking to make return on the Lord's investment. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been my mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asinicritus. <laughs> Some of these names. So, someone's got to name their kids these names. Phlegon. Hermes. <laughs> Phlegon. Phlegon Shoemaker. Hermes. Patrobus. Hermes. And the brothers who are with them. Greet <laughs> Philologus. Julia. Nereus and her, his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. So you have this, this listing of all these people. A lot of them, nothing is even said about them. Huge list of people there in the last verse 13 to the end. Just a bunch of people listed. Nothing spoken about them. But these are people that Paul can remember as being faithful servants of Christ. He says, greet them. They're serving the Lord. They're working hard for the Lord. Um, Now you could see that to make a return on the Lord's investment does not require you to do some mighty act. You do not have to do something extraordinary. Now, through the power of the Spirit, everything that we do is always supernatural. But it's not always so extraordinary. It doesn't always look that way on the surface. Sometimes it just looks like taking your hard-earned money and caring for the poor. Nothing extraordinary in that. Maybe taking care of a sick parent. Sometimes it looks like this. 1 Peter 4.9 Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. <laughs> That seems very simple, but it's there in the scriptures. Show hospitality to one another and don't grumble about it. That's how you make a return on Lord's investment. Sometimes it looks like this. 3 John 5 through 8. Being faithful, not in going out and being a missionary in the jungles, but rather being faithful in supporting other people who are doing that. Being faithful in supporting other missionary labors. That's how you make a return on the Lord's investment. It looks like 1 Timothy 4.12. Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. It looks like that, brethren. It looks like walking as an example to the brethren in the church. It looks like this in Titus 2. Men, be self-controlled, sober-minded, be dignified. 
sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. It looks like women being reverent, not slanderers, not gossipers. Don't be a slave of wine or any other kind of vice to take your edge off. Love your husbands and your children. Be kind and submissive to your husbands. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like to make an investment or to, to make a return on the Lord's investment. Looks like Ephesians 4.25, speaking the truth with one another in love. Simple matters like this. Looks like Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Don't do what they do. Call them out in what they do. And it looks like a million other things in the Bible. But none of those things are necessarily extraordinary. There's some extraordinary things in the Bible, no doubt. Well, brethren, the way in which we make a return on the Lord's investment is not by finding the most extraordinary, outlandish thing that I could possibly do and get my name in a book. That's not how we make a return on the Lord's investment. That's how you become like Hezekiah at the end of his days and become proud and go to your downfall. That's how you get there. But brethren, you humble yourself. You seek to be an instrument in the Lord's hands. You seek to live for His glory. You seek to live in such a way that the grace of God towards you is not in vain. And you make a return on the Lord's investment. In some manner, some way. Brother, may God help us to do that. Brother, don't get stuck thinking. I, I, I talked about this, or mentioned this verse. I was reading Joel, and I just, I loved this verse. You know, we can get stuck thinking. I've wasted so much. Think about your life. 60-something years not having been a Christian. And you can get tempted to think, oh, I've wasted so much. How could I make... A return. How can I make a return on the Lord's investment? I love this. Joel 2.25. I will return to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. <laughs> I just like that. I will return to you those years. God is in the business of redeeming things. So we have to look at our lives. We think, this has the, the, the locust of laziness eaten up my years, and I haven't been able to make a return on the Lord. Has the locust of sin and rebellion eaten up my ears? I got, I've got no ability to make a return on the Lord. Brethren, God can restore that kind of thing. Even if we've wasted time, even if we've wasted stuff over here because of sin or rebellion or laziness or all any other manner of sin, we've wasted stuff, God can restore it. God can rebuild it. God is in the business of restoring things. God is in the, build us of redemption, in, in the business of redemption, and God will restore it if we are willing to be used of Him. So may God help us that we would press on, that we would produce a harvest for the Lord, that we would make a return on His investment in us. Let me pray.